podcast listeners. Uh, welcome to another tour guide to tell all. We are uh, your friendly semi-neighborhood uh, Washington, D.C. tour guides and historians and purveyors of all good and interesting knowledge. Uh, we are here with another fall installment uh, for our uh, series. We This is season two, and we got some exciting stuff today. Um, but first, I'm Rebecca. I'm Becca. And together, we are, we are the, the Rebecca's. Was <laughs> well, that one and really drag out there? <laughs> that was good. That was good. That was a long one. It was a slow burn. <laughs> we are here in season two. We're talking about, uh, so this is September, and we just had Labor Day, and you heard our episode about the Johnstown flood, which was a labor-related uh, topic. We wanted to do all labor all the time for September, so this one has a labor connection as well. Uh, that's not the primary focus of it, but it does have uh, a labor slant to it, and this is also a story that we've wanted to tell for a little while. Um, we, so if you remember back a while ago, we talked about um, the assassination of President Garfield. We have not done President Kennedy. We may at some point. We will never do President Lincoln's assassination on this pod because no, we you offer. Have to come take our Lincoln assassination tour. Yeah, we have a whole tour and it's really great and you have to come take it. And, uh, and we'll put it in the show notes too, but we have a, a link uh, on our YouTube channel of basically a virtual telling of Lincoln's assassination story. So you can check out the YouTube videos that we did um, last year in 2020. Yes, but there is a fourth presidential assassination, and that's what we're going to talk about today. So we're going to do a little McKinley and Shulgosh. Chronologically, I should point out before Becca gets crazy on me, it's the third, not the fourth, yeah. in chronological order. But... Um, Yes, so that's what we're going to talk about. Uh, as always, you can find us on the Twitters and the Instagrams. We love to interact with people, and um, we are just so thankful to our patrons who keep the lights on and the uh, motors running. And we have for September... We're going to do something that several patrons have asked for. Our patron episode this month uh, is uh, I'm going to talk about why I hate Woodrow Wilson, um, and it's going to be really great. So that's a good reason. That's a good enough reason to be a patron right there. That's going to be a grade A rant, and I cannot wait for it. <laughs> <laughs> it is. We also have done um, the, we did uh, Lady Bird Johnson last month. We've got really good patron plans. So if you want to become a patron, um, you this is a good time. Woodrow Wilson's coming up at the, towards the end of the month. Uh, so at any rate, um, we're going to dive in. Are you ready? I'm ready. Uh, this is something, like Rebecca said, we wanted to do for a long time. If it had been up to us, if we had our druthers, or if we had not known that this was going to go as long as it did, we probably would have done all the assassinations just like in a row. Because as historians, I think we really enjoy talking about these sort of flashpoint moments in history, because in and of itself, an assassination story is exciting, right? There's drama and death and, you know tragicness and poetry, but also each one of these presidential assassinations tends to often reflect the upheaval or the um, moments of change and evolution that are happening in this country. And the McKinley assassination is no exception. This is happening right as the country is on the dawn of a new century, right at a moment when there are many different movements and things sort of coalescing. And it tends to overlap with a lot of really interesting subjects like labor. So uh, I'm excited. If you listen to our Garfield episode, you probably remember that both Rebecca and I sort of came to these presidential assassinations in a similar way, which is through <laughs> the fantastic Broadway musical Assassins uh, yes. with lyrics and music by one Mr. Stephen Sondheim. And so truthfully, as a kid, that's really my first like in-depth understanding of William McKinley and the man who had assassinated him, Leon Cholgosh. So uh, like all things in my life, it goes back to Stephen Sondheim. And uh, we will not sing in this episode because no. nobody wants that. Um, but we will link to... Uh, the Ballad of Sholgosh in the uh, in the show notes. Yeah, he's kind of a 
in the movie, he's almost the lo- or in the the musical, he's almost got a love song with yeah. Emma Goldman, who we're going to talk about a little bit. But yeah, he's an interesting character in the musical. Man, from your lips to God's ears, that we ever get a movie musical version of Assassins. <gasps> that would be so someday. Great. I'm oh, casting yeah. Oscar Isaac in my head. As yeah. everybody, it's just As- all Oscar Isaac. Yes, please. <laughs> Sorry, I digress. Um, so yeah, President <laughs> William McKinley. William McKinley is our 25th president, which is like easy to remember because it's a nice round number. He is like many presidents, particularly of this era from Ohio and a Civil War veteran. So we're right in this sort of um, period of time where we're past the Civil War, um, but many of the men in power served in this war. They remember this division. They remember this time in our country. Many of them are Republicans sort of in that Lincoln vein, following along in this Lincoln um, sort of vein of Republicanism. However, as the country has grown, expanded, particularly in an international stage, the party is really growing and changing and evolving. So uh, a lot of these presidents, I feel like, in the late 1800s can be feel interchangeable, but they also really mark the way in which the party is changing and the country is changing. Um, McKinley, oh, sorry. I was going to say, he's also our last Civil War veteran to serve as President of the United States. He's the last one to serve. And he also, and I found this to be fascinating, he knows Rutherford B. Hayes from, like, back in the day. Like, they knew each other in the war. Um, And so for both of them to, they champion each other kind of as, you know, Rutherford B. Hayes is a little bit uh, older, and they champion each other in sort of the Civil War and early Ohio politics, which I found to be really kind of an interesting side plot there. That's right, our last Civil War veteran, which makes sense by the time McKinley enters into office. I mean, we're 40 years past, almost just about 40 years past. Um, He is, you know, we're not going to go into a full, full McKinley biography, but he will ultimately sort of find himself uh, in the law, which um, is going to be financially successful for McKinley. It's going to be good networking. And like many, I think, politicians, particularly of this era, law just feeds right into politics and kind of civil service. Along the way, he's going to marry Ida uh, McKinley, who would really be the love of his life. Uh, He and Ida have a really kind of beautiful marriage. He loves her so much. She is a woman who is in very poor health for much of her life, although she will outlive her husband. They're going to lose both of their children. They have two daughters, Catherine and a daughter also named Ida, who both die very, very young just in the first couple years of their lives. That's a loss that they really don't ever get over. And it's uh, understandably uh, has an incredible impact on uh, Ida's health. So William McKinley, as he's moving up this sort of political ladder, is also very much, I think... uh, you know, he's a political striver. He's got political ambitions, but he always really prioritizes his wife, uh, keeps uh, always is very uh, clear that she needs to be near him. She travels with him. She goes places with him. He's not comfortable being away from her for long periods because of the way her health has suffered. Uh, so they really have, I think, a bond unusual for the era uh, mm-hmm. at a time where the men men's sphere and women's sphere was still really so separate. Uh, and that means, of course, that she is going to be with him when we get to this fatal event. Yes. Their marriage actually is kind of cute. I mean, it's very, the, they have this tragedy. Both of their kids die within a year of each other and they're very little. Uh, and she develops epilepsy right around that time. She never really recovers from her children's death. And he's just very devoted in his care and very solicitous of her, which I think speaks well of him. Um, yeah, and he's gonna, um, he, he's a congressman for a while and then governor of Ohio, and he kind of makes it known that he's moving up in the party. Uh, Joe, Joseph Cannon, Uncle Joe, uh, is gonna say that McKinley kept his ear so low to the ground that it was full of grasshoppers, which I feel like is kind of an odd analogy, but I think that what that means is that he, like, always is you know, very much modern day, testing public opinion, figuring out what the voters want. And he's always kind of got his fingers on the pulse uh, of what the electorate wants from him. That is Speaker of the House, Joseph Cannon, Uncle Joe, who the Cannon Building's named for. And uh, it's a great example of the weird little colloquialisms he used. But uh, he means it in a good way. He means that McKinley, particularly at a time where there are divisions in this party, there's divisions over financial policy, foreign policy. There's divisions over trade and business and um, expansion and who who is the audience for our party? Who votes are we trying to win over? Um, McKinley seems to be really uh, on the forefront of understanding how the country is shifting and changing. Um, I think sometimes uh, when we look back at McKinley today, we sort of think of like, Big Bill and sort of this guy who's out of touch with the 
the everyday man, but that's really not the case. McKinley really was, uh, I think, clued in to what workers wanted, and he wanted to find a way to bring those voters into the party. Uh, mm -hmm. He wanted to find a way for the Republican Party to win over those voters. Um, so it's not too surprising that in 1896, he's going to be chosen as the Republican nominee. Um, he is going to, he's been moving and shaking in the party, making all the right connections, uh, really sort of working the right uh, coalitions. So he becomes the nominee, and who does he run against in 1896? He runs against William Jennings Bryan. Flashback to our William Jennings Bryan episode. If you haven't listened to it, definitely do because this overlaps really yes. into the same time period and what's happening in the country. But do you want to give like a slight? Uh, so William Jennings Bryan, you should listen to our pod. We talk about bimetallism, which is silver versus gold and it's really complicated uh but basically william jennings bryan is the youngest person ever to receive a um, electoral college vote for president he is this young phenom representing the people and the you know he wants to go out and campaign and he does these orates all over the country William McKinley's governor of Ohio. He represents the moneyed interests, uh, the sort of power. And he's going to run in 1896 what's called the Front Porch Campaign, which is something that is, it still flummoxes me how someone thought they could run for president of the United States by not going anywhere. Like his whole idea was, I'm going to be on my front porch and people will come to me and then vote for me. And it just... It was a different time, folks. Um, so anyway, he does, and he's very like successful at it. He runs on isolationism. Uh, he wants to avoid getting involved in foreign wars, which is ironic, because that's exactly what he does do as president. Um, spoiler alert. <laughs> uh, he also, he's going to really, um, the Republican Party is very much ascendant. In the Women do not have the right to vote yet. That's another 20 years away. Uh, and so we're, this is the, he represents big moneyed interests. This is the height of the Gilded Age. Uh, and so he's going to represent banks and industry. And McKinley is going to outspend William Jennings Bryan by 10 to 1. Yeah. Not a typo. Did not misspeak. 10 to 1. Uh, and and so he wins very overwhelmingly in 1896. He, he carries a very strong electoral win. The popular vote is a little bit closer because Bryant is popular. He really is popular across the United States, but he cannot compete with the McKinley money. And in fact, if you want to look at a moment where campaign finance changes forever in America, it's the 1896 election because this is the first time that a candidate has gone to industrialists and businesses and individuals and saying, instead of people who hold office, basically just giving a cut, um, basically they make campaign promises. You give money to my campaign, I'll protect you. This was orchestrated by McKinley's very close associate campaign manager, basically his right-hand man, Mark Hanna, um, who really pioneers this new way of fundraising, which has changed the United States really forever. It is. Mark Hanna's fascinating. And we should do a separate pod on Hanna. I honestly was like, as soon as I started putting notes in on him, I was like, there's so much to talk about. He's on the list. He's been on the list since moment one. Mark Hanna is like McKinley's like shadow advisor. And he's like to the point where when McKinley becomes president, Hanna moves around the corner from the White House to like supervise uh mark Hanna is very much and in fact this is sort of a modern reference and he's still living so we're gonna just do this anyway um carl rove is gonna say that he's mark Hanna was his own political inspiration uh for his politics fascinating yeah yeah, yeah. so uh, carl rove for those who may not remember he was sort of uh george w bush's sort of political guru uh during the early 2000s so he is going to very much call back to mark Hanna and say that mark Hanna was his political inspiration Mark Hanna is fascinating. Not always good, but fascinating. Uh, and so he, anyway, they, he, McKinley gets elected and he does not keep us isolated as it turns out. <laughs> as much we, as that's sort of the overwhelming public opinion is, you know, nobody wants foreign entanglements. Nobody wants, they, we want to be isolated overwhelmingly. That is not at all how it plays out. But McKinley really, and again, the Spanish-American War and the Philippine insurrection is another thing we could do a whole pot about because there's a lot of, like, interventionism in this time period. Uh, but McKinley very, is very savvy in understanding that Americans at that time need to feel like we are doing the right thing, that we're civilizing people. And that's very much how, particularly the Philippine 
insurrection is played out from the White House. Like, we're doing the civilizing mission, which is super gross and super disgusting. But that's how played out real well, and it's going to make McKinley very popular. It's also, I think, very much this idea that America itself is ascendant, that we are becoming a world power. We are rivaling the great countries of Europe. We we have, been, you know, we've passed the centennial of the United States at this point. So we're past 100 years and look at where we are. And so while Americans say and public opinion polls and, you know, sort of uh, op-eds and, and newspapers will sort of say we don't want to get involved, we also want to demonstrate that we are growing and becoming strong. And McKinley represents that in just about every way. This is a man who has no trouble making a decision, no trouble sort of taking action. And so he really represents, I think, that that moment where we want to show that we are growing and becoming this world power. Yes. Which is very hard to be a world power and not get involved in foreign entanglements. So it's one of those things where it's what people say they want, but what they also really want. Yes, very much. That's very true. Um, and well, let's let's switch gears. Yeah, against this sort of backdrop, though, of what's happening, we're also at a point in this country uh, as McKinley's making his way up the ranks. The country is booming. We're growing immensely. We're going further and further west, and we have huge waves of immigration. Uh, just absolutely an influx of people flooding to the United States. And I feel like Sholgosh, Leon Sholgosh is the assassin that we're going to talk about. And I feel like in so many ways, he's a great foil for McKinley because, you know, there's a, a real cost to, in terms of real lives and human misery, to the progress that the United States is seeing at this time. And both of these two men are from the Midwest. Sholgosh is going to be born in Michigan. Uh, he is... He's the sort of McKinley is very much opposite. He's down on his luck. He's the child of immigrants. He is, um, he's born in 1873 in Detroit. His parents are Polish immigrants. His last name is very difficult to pronounce and spell. Um, and his family moves a bunch of times. He's going to have various different jobs. He goes to work very young. So he's going to sort of represent the the people who are disadvantaged by this growth that the United States is seeing, he's going to represent the workers. He's going to be very much, you know, he's seen the sort of underbelly of American success and what it has cost people. And that's sort of his origin story. He is, um, he has a number of jobs. He's in various industries. He's going to kind of bounce around. He goes to religious and political meetings when he's not working. Uh, and there's a lot of like an economic and labor upheaval in the 1890s because Shokash is not the only person that's affected by the sort of gilded age excess. There's a lot of people we talked about in Johnstown. This is right around that same time period that people are being deeply exploited for their labor and saying, hey, wait a second. It is wrong that I should work six hours, six days a week, 12 hours. Uh, a day for nothing to make the rich people even richer and none of that trickles down to me so Shulgash is going to very much ride into uh, this burgeoning, there's a bunch of burgeoning movements at this time, a lot of progressivism uh, is taking off, you've got women's suffrage, you have temperance, you have labor movement, you also have anarchism uh, and that's kind of where Shulgash is going to head towards and Shulgash seems to be a little of a an odd guy. Let's just, you know, to contextualize slightly too, he is at this point, as we're moving into the 1890s, in his 20s. So you've got a young man who's been working from the time he's been nine or 10, who has just been in the system for a decade of his life, and he's seen the impact it's had on his family, his friends, the people in his community. So here he is in his 20s. He's of, you know, he's been working nonstop. Yeah. It's broken his body. In many ways, it's broken his spirit. It's not surprising that he very likely suffers a nervous breakdown, according to those that know him, around 1898 or so. Um, and it's not surprising that when he starts going to these meetings, he feels a sense of community and a sense of inspiration, particularly among the anarchist movement. Because, um, you know, as is often the case with many of these movements, the young are the ones sort of questioning, why is this system in place? And Sholgosh is very much of that generation that's saying, why is it like this? Why are others benefiting from the backbreaking labor that we're doing? And again, this is a time in the United States with very little social safety net. There's very little social services. And so all of this work and for what? Right, for who? 
you know, he's laid off at several points and not particularly because he's a bad worker. He doesn't seem to be a bad worker just because workers are like interchangeable parts. And he, he seems to have had a nervous breakdown. There's a seemingly a poor relationship with his stepmother, I think. Um, and so he's got some personal issues. Uh, he's going to latch on to very much, uh, Emma Goldman and Emma Goldman's another person we should do an entire pot on because she's really interesting too. I really love this time period so much. <laughs> anyway, uh, Emma Goldman is an anarchist. She's an, an, a Russian immigrant uh, to the United States, and she is a firebrand. Emma Goldman believes in all kinds of stuff that are not acceptable things to believe in uh, at this time, like, you know, women getting the right to vote and birth control. Uh, and she really is sort of at the forefront of this whole idea that like, why are you working so hard for people who don't give anything back to you? And so he's going to be really inspired by Emma Goldman. And there seems, and depending on who you read about this, and this is very much played up in the musical assassins, he, he Leon Shogash seems to have developed, um, a crush, you know, a, a, a frisson for Emma Goldman. He thinks she's um, delightful. And uh, it is not clear how much of that is real. Like, he definitely becomes obsessed with her ideas. He certainly, I mean, he will find out when she's speaking. He, he will attend multiple events. He shows up at her house uninvited at least one documented time in July of 1901. Um, Goldman will express to several other people in the movement concern that there's a man following her around Chicago in this time period, 1900 and 1901. So she certainly, we have documentation from her that if nothing else, he was maybe a little too into the movement or too close to her. Um, which she probably was used to, to an extent. Um, yeah. She inspired a lot of radicalism, as yes. it were. And she also, there's also like, she seems to think, or at least this is what she documents, that he might be like trying to narc him out. Like that he's, you know, undercover for whatever government agency and that you need to be careful because he seems to turn up. And it it is from her description of it. And again, like this is 1901, like stalking women is not, I mean, it is a thing. It's what people did that, but it's there's not like a word for that. Uh, and so it, it is unclear whether his intentions towards her are like political or not political. I tend to think based on like Emma Goldman was not a, a, a shrinking wallflower. I think if it came to it, she knew she could handle herself. So my understanding is of this and my read of this, and maybe this is too generous, I don't know, but that he was more politically obsessed than like romantically obsessed with her. And it's, it's very easy to understand how a man at this point, uh, by the time we get to 1901, he's 28 years old, you know, is going to fall in thrall mm -hmm. to the ideas that Emma Goldman is espousing. And what Emma Goldman is advocating for is some of the most radical language and action of this era. We've talked in some ep other episodes about progressivism and some of these movements. Emma Goldman is truly a radical. She is to the far edge of mo many of these movements. Uh, she has, by this time, as we get to the 1900, 1901, she has been implicated in an assassination attempt of an industrialist. Um, her, the, her lover tried to kill Henry Clay Frick. So like, and Emma Goldman spent time in jail for her role in that. So, I mean, this is a woman who's not just talking about let's break down the system. She's talking about action in a way that is parallel or very close to violent action. And so if you're a young man disenfranchised, you're a young man who has put his body through toil and labor, and you, this is what you're being given, this is what you're being mm -hmm. presented with, it's very easy to see how this could appeal to someone like Sholgosh. Oh, absolutely. I can, I mean, there's, you know, it's so interesting in progressive, the progressive movement at this time, there are people who want to move, like work within the system and reform it from within. And then there are people like Emma Goldman who literally want to blow it up. Uh, and you can see how that, you know, you can see how she arrives at that conclusion. It's, she really just wants to basically throw bombs literally and just shake things up and restart working within the system isn't going to work for her that's too the uh, progress is too incremental uh we clearly just need to 
restart. And you can see how that would attract someone like Shogash, who's been really exploited, who has a bad home life, who just blames, and it seems like he kind of blames other people for his problems. And it just, you can see how this idea of like, all right, we need to like hit the reset button here and just restart all of this. You can see how this would appeal uh, to somebody like him. And he really comes to believe and espouse the idea that it is the structure of the U.S. government that is flawed, that perhaps by taking matters into his own hands, the common man can rise. Uh, there is also, at this time period, and I'm very much an Americanist, but this is not unique to the United States. There's similar movements across the country, uh, across the world, um, and there is an assassination of a leader in Europe in 1900. Uh, King Umberto of Italy is assassinated by an anarchist who basically tells the press that he's tired of being exploited, he's going to take care and remove this king for the good of the common man. Yes. And so this is the kind of stuff that Sholgosh is reading about and hearing about, so it is not hard to understand why he gets into his mind that he needs to take down the president of the United States. Yes, and it's kind of an age of political assassination, too. There's, okay. you know, a few of them, uh, like Umberto. There's a guy in Japan who gets assassinated. There's, you know, the most famous political assassination is only 13 years after this, and they start World War One. So there's a lot of anarchist activity, a lot of political assassination happening at this time. So there's a lot going on. Um, but before we get to that, I want to back up just a bit. We're going to talk about the election of 1900 which introduces one of my favorite things in American political history, which is Teddy Roosevelt. <laughs> um, McKinley's super popular. His re-election in 1900, we're never going to do a pod about the election of 1900 yeah. because we don't need to. William Jennings Bryan runs again as a Democrat. He loses badly. McKinley even worse than the first time. Even I mean, worse McKinley is exceptionally popular upon re-election. Yes. McKinley's vice president dies. Garrett Hobart had died in 1899, so he needs a new one. Now, we don't have the 25th Amendment yet. That's going to come a little bit later. So uh, the McKinley isn't, doesn't have to appoint one while he's still president. But when he runs again, he is going to um, have to have a running mate, obviously. Uh, and so there's a gap of time, about a year or so, where there is no vice president, which is kind of strange. And we can't imagine that happening today. And would have been crazy if Sholgosh had struck earlier. Then, there would have yes. been no vice president. Speaker of the House would have been president. It would have been a whole thing. Anyway, he is going to... McKinley doesn't select Roosevelt. Roosevelt is basically selected for him. And Theodore Roosevelt is basically selected because he's doing too good of a job as governor of New York. He's too progressive. He's pushing things in too far of a direction. And the Republican Party is like, whoa, we need to slow this guy down. And so they say, what's the best way to like get him out of politics without actually getting him out of politics? And they say, hmm, let's make him vice president. It's really the best way to handcuff somebody. <laughs> it really is. And Theodore Roosevelt himself is like, bummer. He does not want to be vice president particularly. He sees this as a path to nowhere and is kind of bummed because Theodore Roosevelt there's one thing you can say about Theodore Roosevelt throughout his life he is very vigorous and he always is go go going and he doesn't he's a young man he doesn't want to cool his heels as vice president for a while yeah he's okay. got big ambitions and he's not the guy to stand in the background and do nothing um but you can really see it I can see obviously the Republican Party has their agenda for Roosevelt. It also just doesn't hurt. He's so popular, he's young, he is vigorous. He'll go out and campaign, which is good for the party, right? They're trying to grow the Republican party and they don't mind if he brings more progressive voters to the party. They just don't want him implementing more <laughs> progressive <those> policies. <laughs> but they love what he brings from um, an electoral perspective. And uh, he is going to bleed away some of those Bryant supporters. People who voted for Bryant four years ago are going to see Theodore Roosevelt and see what Theodore Roosevelt's doing. And, you know, it's going to, it's just a runaway election. I mean, there's, there's no beating the combination of McKinley and Teddy. No. It's just not happening. Nope. 
And then McKinley gives his second inaugural address. Uh, in this inaugural address, he's going to promise to open trade more widely, expand foreign markets into areas where traditionally domestic markets has dominated. So this is going to have a huge impact on American workers, American labor, and American trade. Um, and this inauguration, when he gives this speech, this is not just like, I'm giving my inaugural speech and I'm just gonna go back to the White House. This is essentially planned by Mark Hanna to be the kickoff of what will be a series of speeches across the country and a big travel across the US for McKinley. The idea is that he's gonna kick this off with like his inauguration um, and then he's just going to travel around for the next several months and it will all culminate in the Pan American Exposition in Buffalo, New York in June of 1901. So a couple of things that I wanna just at least highlight. First of all, if you haven't listened to our 1893 Chicago World's Fair uh, exhibit, that's going to be kind of what the Pan American exhibit is. This is obviously eight years later. It's in Buffalo, not Chicago, but it, and the technology has improved in eight years, but it's the same kind of idea where you're going to show off to the world how really cool we are and that we can do fun and exciting things. And so it's this big world's fair. It's going to go on for months and they choose Buffalo for whatever random reason they do. Buffalo campaigns aggressively to get it. <laughs> Which they really do. <laughs> um, and But a big also, part of it is the proximity to Niagara Falls. This is one of the reasons why they want to have it near Buffalo is because Niagara Falls is nearby. With the improvement of travel, with the economic prosperity, they think that there are going to be a lot of people that are going to want to come and see yes. this incredible natural wonder. Um, and it was very similar to the scale of the Chicago's World's Fair in terms of many, many large buildings are built temporarily buildings. There's exhibitions on technology, electricity, um, mechanics. There's a woman's mm -hmm. building all mm -hmm. about where the, the uh, contributions of women in this era organized by suffragists. Um, so it really is this massive event. And of course, Hannah wants everything to sort of build up to this big international uh, exposition. And you also see, like, McKinley isn't certainly the first president to travel on the train, but, like, the ease of travel around the country is becoming, like, we're used to this now. President gets on a plane and goes wherever he wants. But back then, like, the idea that the president's going to move around the country and give speeches in different places uh, and sort of address crowds, like, where they live is a big, kind of a big deal. It's a novelty. Uh, and he's going to have this big speech in Buffalo and there's going to be fireworks, which is another big novelty. They're going to have this huge electric light display and fireworks and it's going to be amazing. And I also want to, and I was doing the research for this, when they do do the fireworks, Becca, the, they announced this whole firework display about w welcome William McKinley, chief of the U.S. and our empire. And I would like to just pause for a brief moment on that last word there which is our empire. <laughs> so yes, anyway, inter expansionism is kind of the word of the day. Very much so. However, none of this really goes as planned. No. Um, as we mentioned before, um, traveling is easier, um, but McKinley's very, very devoted to his wife. And his intention for doing this multi-month trip is that Ida McKinley will travel with him. She is going to go with him. She's going to um, be a part of this. Uh, however, that takes a real toll on her. And she falls very, very ill, in fact, uh, so ill at a point that they truly fear she may not survive, uh, and they basically cancel everything. Um, McKinley refuses to do this. Um, he cannot risk his wife's health, and he does not want to be away from her. So much of what Hannah had planned out uh, leading up to this June speech is canceled, and they push McKinley's visit to the Pan American Exposition to September. And again, these were multi-month um, you know, expositions, so it was easy to do that. Um, this was like not ideal because they had built a whole big 10-day visit uh, to the fair for McKinley. Uh, it was going to include visits to Niagara Falls. He was supposed to make several different appearances at the Pan American Exposition, all, uh, all kind of in the name of selling tickets and getting people to come. And he was supposed to do several events with Civil War veterans. So all of this has to be reshuffled. All of this has to be changed. It's a big upheaval. There's a lot of sort of griping and grumbling about McKinley changing his plans. It's a lot of headache for Hannah. But again, I think it's such a beautiful reflection of how seriously he took his wife's health and safety. 
And so this is all happening as Cholgosh in 1901 is getting increasingly radicalized, um, increasingly desperate to take action against this unjust and unequal system. He's been sort of going back and forth to and from Buffalo. There's this exposition going on. McKinley's supposed to come. He's coming back and forth, back and forth. And then he sees in a newspaper an article uh, talking about McKinley's visit in September. Cholgosh would say later, it was in my heart. There was no escape for me. I could not have conquered it had my life been at stake. There were thousands of people in town on Tuesday. I heard it was President's Day. All those people seemed bowing to the great ruler. I made up my mind to kill that ruler. This becomes sort of the moment where Sholgosh knows McKinley's going to be in this place. I'm going to find an opportunity to kill him. And he does not as yet have a clear plan. He is in Buffalo. He's going to go to Walbridge's Hardware on Main Street in Buffalo, and he's going to buy a 32 caliber Ivor Johnson revolver. So September 3rd is when he buys the gun. September 4th is when the president and the first lady arrive in Buffalo. They arrive on the train, and uh, cannons are going to salute his arrival because, you know, president... And that's going to um, blow out several windows, as it turns out. They set up the cannons in the wrong place. They wanted, <laughs> you know, the president's coming. People are excited. They had a plan for where the cannons were going to go. And they feared that they weren't going to be, like, where they wanted. So they moved them even closer. And they're so close, it blows out several windows on that train. You can imagine how terrifying that is. Your train pulls in, there's a boom, and all these windows break. People think it's a bomb threat. People think it's anarchists. First Lady panics and freaks out. Um, you know, McKinley is sort of told that, that at first that it's, it's a cannons, then maybe it's anarchists. No, it's cannons. So there's already, as he arrives, this sense of, like, everybody's a little on edge. And Sholkosh is right there, and he shoves up close to McKinley. He has his gun. His intention at this point is to get as close to the president as possible and shoot him. But as the president's getting off this train, Sholgosh realizes that he's too well-guarded. There's too many people around him, and he gets pushed back. Um, it's important to note that as, you know, Sholgosh is trying to get close to McKinley. He's trying to get close, but as McKinley comes off the train, he's guarded. There is protection for the president as he's moving and traveling at this large fair. I do want to pause, and people ask this all the time, where is the Secret Service? So the Secret Service is actually created by Abraham Lincoln, and its first job was to search for counterfeiters, so people passing off fake money. Uh, we have to go through the Garfield assassination and McKinley assassination before their remit changes and they become presidential bodyguards. So they are not in evidence here. Their president does have security. There is concern for his personal well-being. These are large crowds. They're very excited. Uh, he also is, um, you know, there has been two at this point presidential assassinations. So there is some concern, uh, but there's not really a dedicated, like, security apparatus uh, the way that we would have today, the way that we're going to have after this happens. So he is guarded, uh, but... Not by the professionals, I think, uh, would probably be my way of putting that. By, like, for the most part, they're using law enforcement officers. Yeah. They're using cops. McKinley has bodyguards. Mahana yes. has arranged for bodyguards to often be with McKinley when he travels. But these, there's not in a, a single service that's organizing this. And uh, it becomes very haphazard, particularly at the Pan American Exposition in Buffalo, New York, because there's almost too many cooks in the kitchen. Yes. Um, obviously, the Buffalo... City wants to show off their police, so they're there. Um, they've called in people to kind of come and help, but you've got a lot of different people who are there to help and protect, but really have no role. And they're not talking to each other. Like, you got the Buffalo police, the New York State police, you've got some bodyguards that have been brought up. Like, they're all not talking to each other either, which is really one of the big things that the Secret Service does is sort of streamline this entire process. Like, that has not happened yet at this point. So McKinley is going to go to the fair on September 5th, which is the day after he arrives. The gates open at 6. There are a.m. Would you get there at 6 a.m., no. Becca? I would not, no. Uh, 116,000 fairgoers are there. Probably 50,000 of them are going to go to this speech. That's a lot of people. And the speech is going to focus on American isolationism, 
Which ironic, is, I feel. Ironic, yes. Particularly ironic when they greet him with fireworks talking about how he's the chief of our empire. Like, very much like talk about one thing and do another. It's amazing to me. And when he's done with the speech, McKinley, ever the devoted husband, is going to escort his wife to her carriage and she leaves. Shogosh is at the speech. With his gun. With his gun. But he's worried that he'll miss the target due to the jostling crowds. 50,000 people all trying to get close to McKinley. Shogosh doesn't feel like he can get off a good shot. And so he's... And you're only getting, and he knows he's only getting one shot. You're only getting one shot off. Like that's, there's so many people. And so he decides he's not going to risk it. Uh, he is, uh, tries to follow McKinley, but gets pushed back by the guards. McKinley's going to tour the fair and Shogosh follows him as he tours the fair again with his gun, but he just can't get close enough. Uh, and McKinley's trying, he wants to greet the public. And this is one of the things there is, the president has a personal secretary, George Cordelieu, uh, who is going to be very concerned about McKinley's safety. And he is going to try to persuade McKinley to sort of back off of all of this, you know, glad handing and handshaking and things like that. Because he's worried with crowds like this, it won't be possible to secure the president's person and McKinley just basically shrugs him off and says, Oh, it'll be fine. People love me. I want to talk to people. I want to shake their hands. This is how I politic. And so he basically dismisses Cordelieu's uh, concerns. This is how I politic, which is very true. McKinley did. It's the front porch thing, right? He yeah. loved just talking to the everyday person, loved to be out there schmoozing. And I think this is a push pull with almost every president. It's, you know, they, it's inherent in many politics, politicians to want to be out there with the people, but how do you keep someone safe yeah. in that situation? 100%. Uh, the next day, September 6th, the McKinleys go to Niagara Falls. Aww. Mm -hmm. uh, Shogosh is in line at the gate. He's waiting to get into the fair. His intention is to follow McKinley around, but he basically sees the McKinleys pass in their carriage. So again, they're sort of crossing paths, but... Um, it's, you know, uh, Shogash is not going to be able to get very close to the carriage. Um, the plan is to have a big public reception at the Temple of Music uh, after McKinley comes back from Niagara Falls. Uh, you mentioned um, George. Uh, he doesn't like this public reception mm. at the Temple of Music at all. Um, he keeps taking it off the schedule. And McKinley keeps putting it back in. And the thing is, he doesn't like the idea of all these people crammed in a room. He doesn't like mm -hmm. the idea of not being able to see um, people, you know, be able to monitor for danger. It just seems like asking for trouble. And McKinley, in his sort of, I guess, naivish way, sort of says, why should I not do this? No one would wish to hurt me. <laughs> just sort of incredible. Yeah. You know, he has this feeling, which is very much the national feeling for, for many people in McKinley's position, that mm -hmm. things are good. This is a time of prosperity. America's growing. People are happy. There's almost this wishful, you know, mindset that, well, things are good for me, so they must be right. good for everyone. And there's sort of this, like, maybe there's some, maybe there's a few workers upset, or maybe there's a few people who think our system is corrupted, but they're the outliers. Yes. There's really this dismissal of how much upheaval there really is. Yes, there really is. Uh, and there's a lot of, um, I think, wishful thinking and, you know, presidents, particularly once you've been president a while, you really are only confronted with the people that you want to be confronted with. There's a real, like, lack of, you know, opposition because you're president and people tell you what you want to hear in a lot of ways. And I think McKinley sort of suffers from, like, it, everywhere I go, people seem to be excited about me, so why wouldn't they be excited about me here? <laughs> and that doesn't really end up working out for him. <laughs> one, one thing, though, that is good for me about this Temple of Music um, public reception is that Ida McKinley is not feeling well. After yes. their trip to Niagara Falls, she was supposed to attend this event at the Temple of Music, and she will not join her husband. She is feeling too under the weather. And so she's not there, and I am blessedly relieved that she was not. Yes. I think if she had been witness to what unfolds, it may mm -hmm. very well have killed her. I, I think it would have been too heartbreaking. I agree. So the Temple of Music is packed. They've brought in extra security. 
but because of all these logistics, some of these extra guards are actually going to cause crowding and obstruct the views of the president. So again, they're not coordinating with each other. They're not talking to each other. And McKinley was an expert handshaker, evidently. He could shake 50 hands a minute. I learned that, and I was like, that's so many hands. That's a lot of hands. That also, could... who was timing him? Right. Like, what, do you have a stopwatch? What's going on here? Also, doesn't, doesn't your hand get, like, swollen? I don't know. Oh. Oof. Um, and so, basically, like, he's in a receiving line. You know, you've been, everybody has probably been to a wedding. You like line up and people come and shake your hand and say something very quickly to you. Uh, and typically those approaching the president in this situation were asked to have their hands open and empty, but there's, so that they're not holding something. So basically like the, pre, you walk by the president, you have your hand ready to shake his hand and so you have your hand open. So you're not. And it allows the people who are security at these events, people near the president to keep an eye on what people have with them. Right. So it's a kind of good policy for this era to say, sure, if you're in this line, we keep your hands where we can see them, keep them out and, and empty. Right, exactly. Uh, and so people are shaking his hand, but there's no enforcement here of like, there's nobody to say, hey, this guy's got something weird with his hand, like he's holding something. Nobody's enforcing this. And it's September, it's warm. It's yeah. hot, and a lot of people have brought handkerchiefs due to the heat. There was no air conditioning in the Temple of Music. So it's a warm day, and people are crammed in. So a lot of people do have in their hands handkerchiefs, including Sholgosh. He has taken this re revolver and wrapped it uh, around his hand with a handkerchief, using the handkerchief to sort of obscure the gun. Right. And so as he approaches McKinley, rather than shake his hand, Shogas has a gun, and he's going to fire two shots, point blank, uh, at 4.07 p.m. into McKinley's stomach. He tries to fire a third shot, but is stopped by a man named James Parker, who's the man behind Shogash in line. Shogash is immediately apprehended, and uh, McKinley, having been shot twice, stumbles back. Um, he's then guided to a chair and they're going to guide him out on a stretcher. And McKinley, like, this is how, you know, he's kind of a fundamentally a decent person. Like his first response is for, uh, to worry about Shogash and then to worry about his wife. So McKinley is going to say, don't let them hurt him. It must've been so some poor misguided fellow doing, you know, what he was doing. He didn't know, uh, he couldn't have known. Uh, and then he's concerned about his wife. Like you have to be, you know, careful telling her about this like this is you know he doesn't want to hurt his wife go ahead you want to, do you want to do this you can do this go ahead <laughs> so um Shulgash is you know apprehended immediately this is a jam-packed room he's apprehended immediately and there is sort of this fear that they're just going to like the, the mob violence is going to take over. Yeah. Um, McKinley is carried away in an ambulance. This is a big um, fair exposition. They did have medical services prepared. Uh, and when they're in the ambulance, uh, he, there were two shots fired and they find one bullet. It was actually just sort of deflected on a button. So he finds it in his coat, which means there's only one bullet that makes it into his stomach. And it's pretty deep in there. And so McKinley is taken to the Ferris Hospital. The best surgeon in the city is a guy named Dr. Roswell Park. He is not in Buffalo. He is in Niagara that very day doing a very delicate neck, uh, neck procedure. And they summon for Dr. Park because it's the president of the United States has been shot and they want the best surgeon and they will rush him to the fair. And Dr. Park says, no, I'm not going to leave this patient. I'm not going to stop what I'm doing. Nobody can do this neck procedure that I can do. I don't care who he is. I, I'm not going to give up on this patient, which is a, a noble thing in many ways, right? You mm -hmm. sort of are to treat the person in front of you. However, it, uh, and I think a similar way to the Garfield assassination, the lack of having a good professional surgeon is going to be a huge problem for McKinley. In yes. fact, just two weeks later, Dr. Park will save the life of a woman who had a bullet inside of her essentially right at the same spot that McKinley does. And he manages to save that woman's life. So there's a big sort of historical what if of if Dr. Park could have gotten to the fairground. Instead, mm. there are two doctors, Dr. Minter and Dr. Mann, who is an OBGYN, which Ooh, no okay. disrespect to the OBGYNs out there, no. but 
these are not, uh, Dr. Mann in particular is not a surgeon. He is not a doctor that is meant to deal with this sort of traumatic injury. Uh, Dr. Minter is a little bit more skilled, but nowhere to the level of Dr. Park. They need to figure out what to do and they need to act quickly and it's the president and there's this sense of urgency. And I think the urgency prevails over thoughtful consideration of his condition. Yes. And one of their big um, pressures is that the sun is setting, they're losing afternoon sun and that's their light for operating. Okay. The hospital fairground is set up to take advantage of the natural light. Um, there's very little electricity at this point. There's gas lamps and things like that, but it's not nearly as good as the natural light. So they figure, well, we don't wanna operate in the dark, which fair. Fair. So they rush the president into surgery, which is never a good thing. No, and they just, they don't have the right tools to do what they need to do. They don't have the right know-how. I think they're panicked. I'm sure they're panicked. Uh, and they don't, they're basically just probing around in his stomach, which is kind of gross. Uh, they don't find the other bullet. They assume it's lodged uh, in his, the muscles in his back and they patch him up, which isn't great. Like there's a reason that when you get shot, they try to get the bullet out immediately. Like that, that's the thing they do today. Like you got to get the bullet out. Uh, and the reason is this, he is going to, the wound turns gangrenous and gangrene. He seems to recover just like Garfield. He seems to recover at first. There's like, um, he's getting better. Uh, but the gangrene is working its way through his stomach and his kidneys and his pancreas. And, he also, like, his age and his weight is not going to help. Like, if you look at a picture of McKinley, he's a pretty solid, large guy. He's in his late 50s at this point. Um, it is possible that he has um, a heart problem. He's later going to be after post-mortem. Uh, he has cardio cardiomyopathy. Um, so this is not helping any of these. You know, these are comorbidities, as they say. How about that for a, a medical term? Um and so it seems at first that he's getting better, and then he takes a sharp downward turn. On September 13th, so a week later, he is going to collapse, and it is very clear to everyone, including McKinley, that he's not going to make it. And there's this very tearful and sad deathbed scene with his wife and Mark Hanna, and it's, you know, he, it is clear that he's going to die but there's a period of time after it's clear where before he actually does die so there's this whole like deathbed scene and what's interesting to me about this is no one thinks at this point to go get teddy roosevelt the vice president like teddy roosevelt is on vacation with his family not that far away as it turns out they're hiking up mount marcy because that's teddy roosevelt and that's what he does with his little kids <laughs> And no one, like, thinks to, like, I don't know, send him a telegram or whatever. Like, he knows the president's been shot, but when it becomes, there's a, enough of a period of time in between McKinley's, like, his, he starts to get worse and worse, uh, and the time he dies, there's enough time to go alert Teddy Roosevelt, and no one really does. Yeah, I mean, it's sort of like McKinley, about 24 hours before he passes away, basically says, it is useless, gentlemen. I think we ought to just pray. Uh, he knows he's dying. Uh, you know, he has time to sort of gather his close personal friends and his family. And yeah, nobody sort of says, hey, maybe the vice president should get a heads up that he's going to be president soon. Um, and I just think about poor Ida McKinley. She is so distraught in those final hours. She sobs over his body. I want to go to, I Aww. want to go to. Um, it is, it, it does not, there's no dry eye in the house as these men watch Ida McKinley just fall apart. Um, and he sort of just invites it's sort of, I think, kind of lovely. He invites his friends to just join him. They pray. They possibly sing his favorite hymn, which is Nearer My God to Thee, which I always think of the Titanic when I think always, of that. Always, yes. Always, always, always. Uh, and then at 2.15 a.m. on September 14th, um, he dies. Yeah. And then they're like, we need to get Theodore Roosevelt Wait, here. at the last <laughs> moment, they're like, we need to go get Teddy. And so Teddy went at the moment that, Theodore, that McKinley dies, the moment he actually becomes president. Theodore Roosevelt, it's 2 o'clock in the morning. He and some advisors are riding literally down Mount Marcy to find a federal judge to swear him in. Like, that is exactly what happens. Uh, and so no one, like, it, 
it's basically like they know he's dying for about 24 hours before he does die and it isn't until like hour 22 that someone thinks to go get Teddy uh, and swear him in um yeah Sholgash is gonna get arrested uh he's gonna give statements to police he does not deny his involvement I mean there's like a bazillion eyewitnesses so that would have been hard. Uh, but um, he is going to mention Emma Goldman, and um, he the police are going to arrest her uh, in an attempt to get her to turn... Well, they arrest her family, sorry, in an attempt to get her to turn herself in. Uh, she will spend three weeks in jail and uh, eventually be let out because there's absolutely zero evidence because she actually didn't do anything wrong. Um, the trial begins in the state court on September 23rd, so literally... Very quickly. Yeah. Uh, doctors and eyewitnesses testify for two days. Sholgash's lawyers are terrible. Terrible. They present no defense. They interview no witnesses. They basically, he, they say that he refuses to work with them and then basically secure their own careers. So they basically spend this time defending this guy and he gets, you know, no adequate defense. And like, there are plenty of eyewitnesses. He obviously did this, but like there's no discussion that he's there. Or they discuss that maybe he's mentally incompetent, but they determine that le- under the law, he is legally, um, legally sane. And his lawyers are basically like concerned that they will get painted as associating with him. One of his lawyers just basically gives a 25 minute speech about how wonderful McKinley was. Yeah. Which, no argument, I guess, but, you know, that's not exactly the best way to defend your clients. Right. Um, and there's clearly no interest in actually defending Sholgosh. And, I mean, it, it's sort of incredible to me how quickly this trial happens and how quickly it passes. And the jury takes less than 30 minutes. And one jury member says later that they probably would have had the verdict even sooner, but they felt obligated to at least give a cursory glance to the evidence. That bothers me so much. Um, I mean, again, I'm not saying Shogash is innocent. He clearly was not, but he's entitled to a fair trial. He's entitled to competent representation. Anyway, uh, they're going to sentence him to death, and he is executed by the electric chair on October 29th, which McKinley was shot on September 6th. October 29th is, like, not even eight weeks later. So this is all very fast. Shogash's last words. I killed the president because he was the enemy of the good people, the good working people. I am not sorry for my crime. I am not sorry I could not see, I am sorry I could not see my father. So that's sort of it. It's I'm not sorry for what I did. I wish I could have said goodbye to my family. Um, And then he is electrocuted. And this is important. I think that, um, you know, there's sort of, we look at the two presidential assassinations that sort of come before this. Booth has an ideology that is shared by parts of this country. Mm -hmm. So there are certainly pockets of people that can at least understand why Booth does what he does. Gateau, who assassinates Garfield, paints such a colorful character Mm -hmm. with the trial circus that there's certainly an interest in Gateau, even if people are shocked by his actions. He makes for a fascinating subject Mm -hmm. and people are sort of interested in him. Sholgosh is so unrepentantly right convinced that he did the right action he shows no remorse he really um you know says i'm glad i did it i'm not sorry and so you can imagine the public opinion of sholgosh in this event and he's also not super colorful like gato sings and he's outwardly represents himself in court himself (laughs) and he's like this larger than life character and leon sholgosh is boring Almost like, I don't know, boring is the right word, but he's very colorless and he's, do you get the sense that he's very off putting, um, that he's just like on a personal level, like he's just, he's not friendly. He doesn't, the, the people who knew him even before this talk about how he was just kind of weird. Uh, and so he makes for a good villain, you know, like he's very much Booth was, John Wilkes Booth is flashy and a larger-than-life character. Uh, so is Charles Gateau. But Leon Shogash, there's this very everyman, very boring cast to him. And he's unrepentant. He basically, like, I did it and I'd do it again. 
Um, and I, I just feel like that's part of why this sort of fades. You know, he's very, they just want to be done with him. You know, they want to move on. And it feeds into what, so it feeds into so many people's existing prejudices, right? Yes. This is what happens when you let immigrants in. This is what happens, you know, you can't trust workers. You can't trust these people. You can't trust these ideologies. It's very easy to just sort of, you know, say, this is, this fits into exactly why I think we shouldn't let these people have any say. Right. But like, Chogosh is not an immigrant. And that's the interesting thing. Like, I was right. listening to a podcast. Son of the, immigrants. No, yeah. I know. But like, that's my point. Like, he's painted even to this day as an immigrant. Like, it's, there's, that bias is so strong. You know, I listened to a podcast prepping for this and they mentioned that Chogosh was an, an immigrant. And I was like, nope, he wasn't. He was born in this country. Um, and, and it just, He's very easy to dismiss. He does not help himself. And I don't think his lawyers are particularly interested in helping him either. McKinley's and, and, and his lawyers and the press, there's really nobody who's going to be out there yeah. trying to... Uh... Even Emma Goldman distances herself because she doesn't want to be in further trouble. So basically everybody just hands off and leaves Shulgash to his fate rather than deal with the conditions that sort of pushed him in a radical direction. We're just going to assume that he was insane and move on. McKinley's funeral is a big deal. He's very sincerely mourned. He has a funeral train inspired by Lincoln. Buried in Ohio. Canton, Ohio. Yeah, and it goes from Buffalo, basically, back to Washington, D.C. So mm -hmm. he and lie at the White House. He lies in the Capitol Rotunda, so all just like Lincoln. They estimate somewhere in the ballpark of, like, tens of thousands of people coming to see him at the Rotunda. Just absolutely 100,000 people, possibly. Just a huge amount of mourners. Uh, I'll put some clips in the show notes of the funeral uh, procession. We actually have video uh because uh, we're in that era now, moving pictures. Yes. Uh, we actually have video of the McKinley funeral procession. And much of the whispering during this funeral train making its way from D.C. to Ohio is that Ida McKinley is not going to survive it. She is with her husband during this entire mm -hmm. trip. And yeah. people say that they need to prepare for a double funeral in Ohio. She's not going to make it, that she's in terrible shape. And yet Ida McKinley kind of shows them all um, she could not attend the interior of these services. She could not sit in during the services to honor her husband, but she outlives him by another six years. Yeah. Um, she really does kind of prove all the people going, like she's too weak and too upset. Um, she's of course never the same. She will miss her husband deeply, um, but she stays in Canton uh, for the rest of her life. She basically sets up a shrine to uh, William McKinley in her house. And she just remains, um, you know, will stay there and take visitors um, until she dies. But I kind of, I love her for like not completely falling apart right, right. after her husband's death. Yes. And for me, the two, there are two great legacies of McKinley's assassination. One of them is Teddy Roosevelt. Because Teddy Roosevelt, like, is the dawn of a new century. He's a young, vigorous man. And he's going to, He's going to do basically what all the Republican Party bosses had feared that he would do in New York. They try to politically neuter him, and he does all those things on a national level because he's amazing. The other legacy is the Secret Service, which is still with us. <laughs> uh, the Secret Service is going, this is going to be changed the role of the Secret Service and the role of presidential protection forever. And it's going to become the Secret Service becomes an integral part of the presidency. They are going to be completely moved into a protective role. So now they're going to anticipate where the president's going. They have advanced teams. It is not left up to anyone else uh, from this moment forward. We don't leave this to local police. We The local police, when the president goes somewhere, handles crowd control. But the Secret Service is a uniformed uh, division charged with protecting the president and the president's family and the vice president and the vice president's family, obviously. Uh, and so this is going to sort of shift our, our, how we think about presidents and their security. It is going to permanently change the relationship of the chief executive to the people he governs. This is where you're going to start to see 
Secret Service pushing crowds out of the way. No longer are you going to have presidents in receiving lines like you used to and the president just walking around with people uh, like they used to. This is going to move the president, sort of elevate him away from uh, the people that he governs, which has both good and, I would argue, very bad consequences. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. The president is a target. Obviously, he deserves to be to security like any president, of course. But it also moves the president away from the people that he represents, which I feel like is not great. It's a fundamental shift. Yes. Um, and yes, it takes us three presidential assassinations to get to that point. Steep learning curve. What are you going to do? And that's three presidents who die from assassination. That is not including the assassination attempts that happen prior to 1901. Correct. Um, and I went to Buffalo a few years ago, and I was really excited at the idea of, like, seeing where this took place. <laughs> and if you go, there's, like, a little tiny boulder with, like, a little plaque. And it's essentially, like, just on a median of a road. Because the Pan American Exposition, like many World's Fairs and world events similar, were built with lots of temporary buildings. So all these structures, the Temple of Music's destroyed, all these places are destroyed. And, you know, the fairgrounds are turned into other parts of the city. So there's really just kind of a small, Aww. like little tiny boulder. Um, uh, and of course, if you go to Canton, Ohio, you can see um, uh, there's a beautiful structure where McKinley is a, uh, where McKinley is laid to rest with his wife and, and their children. Uh, so there's a lovely little grave site in uh, Canton, Ohio, but there's really not much in Buffalo. And there's no real like museum site or anything that really tells the story, which is sort of fascinating to me. Yeah, that is kind of interesting to me. Um, there's just a boulder. I like that. <laughs> And that is the McKinley assassination. That's it. That's a lot. That was a lot. This is good. Thank you guys for coming along for this uh, road. We've got exciting stuff coming up in October. And um, we are very excited about our fall and winter schedule. And thank you, especially to our patrons. And please feel free to let us know what you thought of the pod. Uh, tweet at us, email us. Uh, we are at tour guide tell on the Twitters and tour guide tell all at gmail.com. Reach out on Facebook. We like to interact with people. You guys are the greatest. Um, and, uh, we'll be back at you in two weeks with more October fun and happiness. October is going to be spooky season. So get ready for things to get a little creepy and crawly. Yeah, it is. All right. Thank you guys so much. We'll see you next time. Thanks, bye. bye.